1850, Elizabeth Barrett Browning published Sonnet 43. It's opening lines, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. The poem was an exploration of the love she felt for her husband, Robert. Now, Lizzie's dad didn't approve of Bob, and so she and Bob had uh, to not only court, but also get married in secret. After the ceremony, they fled to Italy, where Elizabeth wrote those sonnets, and the couple lived happily together for 15 years. In Psalm 103, David writes a song that could be titled or could, could contain the lines, How Do You Love Me? As the stanzas unfurl, we're reminded of the tender, unfailing, destiny-changing nature of God's love for us. This is no love that has to be eloped for, no love expressed in secret. It has been on display for thousands of years for all the world to see. It is God's great desire that people know about his love for us. The world keeps turning because God wants to shower us with his love and draw others into a love relationship with him. We look at the title above verse one and it says, of David and then my soul bless the Lord and all that is within me bless his holy name. Uh, this song is directed inwardly. In it, there are many gospel truths, and God is glorified, absolutely. It's very worshipful, but David's message is to himself. Um, if you spend any time reading, you know, I've had to, over the years, doing leading worship, eventually you come across people who say, you know, no song should ever be anything but singing directly to God, and there's always... Um, you know, a lot of finger pointing about this worship song over here doesn't, you know, isn't good enough, or this one is to this, or this one is to that. And the truth is, when we look into the Psalms, there's such a great wide variety of, of what the songs look like and, and what they sound like and the direction and things like that. And so, absolutely, this song is completely worshipful, completely true, um, full of reminders of things God has done and is going to do, but it's direct, directed inwardly. David speaks to his soul. If you're like me, when I read the word soul, it, it feels kind of like an otherworldly, a ghostly thing. I'm not quite sure what to think about it. Maybe something that just kind of uh, you know, comes to the surface once my physical body expires. But in the Bible, the soul refers to your essential being, who you are. It's your life, your mind, your will, your appetites, the things you yearn for or thirst for, that which makes you, you. That's the soul in the Bible. All of that, David says, should bless the Lord. Everything inside, all of my essence, including my physical body, every compartment of life is meant to bless the Lord. And to bless means to praise, to kneel, to salute. And so David's desire is that the entirety of his being would be oriented toward praising the Lord and loving him. Who is this Lord we're to bless? Well, it's the person that he's going to describe, this person who loves us so well and so personally. Love has a name, and it's Yahweh. We can personally know him because he has revealed himself in his word. He tells us who he is. He has told us his name. He has given us his word. He has explained what he's about and how he acts, and we see his acts throughout history. Verse two says, my soul, bless the Lord. And do not forget all his benefits. Another way to read that last phrase is, do not ignore all his dealings. 
Derek Kidner, a great Bible commentator, says it seems David needed to rouse himself out of some sort of apathy or gloom. We don't know the specific situation under which David wrote this psalm. We're not sure when he wrote it. Um, there's some indication that he wrote it toward the end of his life, but whatever it is, it seemed like he needed to, to jog his memory. He needed to rouse himself out of gloom. And the best way to do that is to remember who God is and what he has done. Remember his accomplishments, his dealings. We're prone to forget those things. We're prone to forget the work of God, the dealings of God. There are a lot of warnings in the Bible, warnings about God's people forgetting the Lord. We see it in Jeremiah multiple times, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Hosea, 2 Peter, Hebrews, Revelation. Uh, the song is true. We are prone to wander. And when we forget God's dealings and, and not only his accomplishments in the past, but what he is accomplishing still today, especially in our lives, when we forget those things, we slide into discontent and discouragement and resentment and frustration and doubt and all sorts of other human characteristics that, that the Lord wants to save us out of and pull us out of so that we can enjoy his overflowing life everlasting. And so the biblical antidote to um, those negative things, resentment, frustration, discouragement, discontent, forgetting God, is to remember simply what God has done, how he deals with the earth and his people, to remember the benefits of salvation. And if you were here, especially in our early studies in Ephesians, those first three chapters, Paul goes to great lengths to remind the Ephesians and us by extension what the benefits of salvation are. And he says, hey, a big point of me writing this letter is that you would grow in your understanding and your apprehension of the benefits of salvation. Here are the benefits of salvation according to David, verse three. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with good things. Your youth is renewed like the eagle. How does he love me? Let me count the ways. Man, what a list. He forgives, he heals, he redeems, he crowns, he satisfies, he renews. And that's not all. We've got a lot of verses left in this psalm. Now, someone might say, wait just a minute, I'm diseased, <laughs> I'm old and tired, uh, and so some of these promises don't ring true. How are we to deal with a phrase like, he heals all your diseases? If this was written at the end of David's life, he was not healed of all of his weakness. He was, uh, there's that uh, terrifying scene there toward the end of his life where he goes out to battle and he's almost killed because He's, he's an old man, and he's too weak to stand against the foes that they're facing, and his guys around him had to come to him and say, you don't go out to battle anymore, and he said, okay, that's fine, and then at the end of his life, we see he's cold and frail, and they can't keep him warm, and uh, he almost loses control of the kingdom because he's unable to be king, and so what's the deal? How do we deal with a phrase, he heals all your diseases? Well, first of all, we see that phrase paired with he forgives all your iniquity. Biblical poetry, like the Psalms, often uses a literary method called parallelism. And what that does is it connects one line to another in twos, usually. In this couplet, 
David would have us think about spiritual and moral disease in our hearts resulting from sin, right? He says, he forgives all of your iniquity, and then the parallelism with that is, and he heals all your diseases. And so it's quite possible that David wants us to think of spiritual disease, heart disease, not like the kind Americans have, just, you know, human heart disease. And, and, and he wants to point out that God heals those diseases, He heals and rejuvenates the inner man. He takes a killer like Saul of Tarsus and transforms him into a hero like Paul. Now, that's a healing work, a healing from the inside out. Paul was cured of his hatred and his violence and his self-righteousness and all of those um, other things. Now, um, that's not a cop-out, though. What about... What about our physical ailments? What about the fact that Jesus healed everyone that he came into contact with who asked to be healed in the New Testament? What about um, our understanding that God can still work healings today? Well, first of all, in, in the end, we know that all our physical diseases will be healed. No one's gonna walk with a limp in heaven, right? Every single ailment, weakness, sickness, disease is going to be healed one day. The effects of sin will be undone in the Lord's kingdom. And, you know, that counts. We say, well, he says, you know, he heals all your diseases, but my diseases aren't healed. Well, not yet, but they will be one day, and it counts even if we have to wait for it. Of course, we want healing now, and that's okay. It's okay to want to be healed of the things that are wrong with you or, or to pray for the healing of those you love, obviously. But we most definitely will be healed in eternity, and we hold that as a sure and comforting hope. Think about it this way. We're not ever surprised when a very old Christian dies, right? We never, we never sort of you know, wring our hands in prayer and say, Lord, why did you let that 100-year-old Christian die? I thought... I thought, you know, you were going to, you know, have power. I thought you were going to heal all my diseases. It's just, it, so we understand, well, yeah, no, we're in, this world is impacted by sin. It's ruined by sin, and we're, we're in a fallen body. The outward man is perishing, right? We understand that. None of us think, well, I'm a Christian, so I'm never going to get old, and I'm never going to die. After all, some, Psalm 103, 3 through 5 promises me I'll feel young all the time and healthy all the time. We know that that's not true. But we shouldn't be surprised either if a young Christian gets sick or if you have a disease or an illness. We live in a fallen world. That's not to say God doesn't heal today. He does. Now, we're told that more often in the New Testament church age experience, God's strength is going to be made perfect through our weakness. And so the way that the Lord operates his power is not the same as when he was walking the earth in his incarnation, demonstrating that he is God and he is Messiah and he's the one that could heal every blind person, every deaf person, every lame person, right? That was a specific work that he was doing when he walked, you know, the shores of Galilee. Now, the way he operates and shows his strength is in our weakness most often, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't heal today. He absolutely does. Just yesterday, I was talking to a friend of mine from out of town uh, he loves the Lord. He goes to a, a, con- a theologically conservative church. He told me about a week ago, doctors found a very scary lump in his wife. They prayed about it for the week, waiting for the follow-up, and then they went back to the doctor yesterday morning, and the lump is just gone. It's just gone. It doesn't exist anymore. That's the Lord healing someone, 
right? We received that, absolutely. That wasn't a, just a mistake. It was, it was that the Lord healed her. And it's not because it was a coincidence. It's not because my friend is more spiritual power than all the other people who are he- praying for healing that week. It's just that God decided to heal in that situation for his own reasons and his own purposes, some of which we might understand someday, some of which we probably won't. But not every sickness is healed in the here and now. That same friend, he has a very difficult chronic illness that has not been healed. And, you know, it's not because he forgot to pray about it, right? It's just that sometimes God heals and sometimes he doesn't. And we wish that he would always heal in the here and now, but he doesn't. And in many cases, it is for his purposes that he doesn't. But in the end, these promises of Psalm 103 will happen. Just like all of your iniquity will be forgiven in the end, all of your diseases will be healed in the end if you're a child of God. We will be raised incorruptible, unsick, full of glory, full of vigor. That's what God will do for us. And we're told there that we will be crowned with love and compassion. And we see there that the Lord is gonna crown us with his own attributes, right? What, what kind of crowns is he gonna put on us? The kinds of crowns that he would wear. One of love and compassion. He is the king of love. He is compassionate. And that's what we're going to look like in the end. It makes sense that we should look more and more like that loving, compassionate savior as we walk with him in the here and now. Christians, we are being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. He's the king of love. He's a God of great compassion and so our lives should be conforming to that image more and more because ultimately we're gonna be brought into eternity where we'll be crowned with those things. Meanwhile, the Lord promises to satisfy us, we're told in these verses, not with worldly things, but with good things. And as Jesus said, none is good but God alone. And so satisfaction in the Christian life comes from godliness and the godly gifts that the Lord gives us, his joy, his peace, the unity that we have with other believers, the family of God that he knits us together with and all these other wonderful gifts. Verse six says, the Lord executes acts of righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He revealed his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. God's active love is applied personally, nationally, and globally. We're told that he executes acts of righteousness. He performs it, he advances it, he manufactures it, he accomplishes it. He's all about righteousness. He is always right, he is always righteous in every situation. People in the world see suffering or injustice around them and some react by saying, how could a God of love or why doesn't God X, Y, or Z? Those are hard questions, ones that we have, you know, conversant answers for, Uh, but those questions at their base level misunderstand the problem. God is always righteous. He is always good. He is always merciful and compassionate. He is gracious even to the guilty, right? The sun and the rain fall on the the evil and the good. Uh, It is man who has fouled the earth. And so, you know, when we say, how could a God of love or why doesn't God, it, it effectively says, well, Human beings, we're not responsible for the problems around us at all. God needs to take care of this. Well, God is taking care of it. He's the one person who says, well, I'll solve all of these problems. It's going to take time, and I'm allowing it to take time so that more and more people can be brought into my spiritual family 
but we can't solve these problems. God can, and he is going to, and he is unfolding that work. But the responsibility or the guilt for why things are the way they are are not on God. They're on us. We're the ones who poured the poison into the well, right, and then drank the water and said, God made me sick. It wasn't the Lord at all. It was you. You are the one that did it. I'm the one that did it. And God is the one person who's doing something about it that matters. Now, God works tirelessly to save us from our destruction that we brought into the world. And he does not hide behind the scenes. He, we see here, reveals and demonstrated. He says, hey, he revealed his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. And he wrote it all down through, you know, these human agents as the Holy Spirit inspired them to collect these books. And he's preserved them so that we can know his ways and his deeds. And so he doesn't hide. There God is throughout all human history, accomplishing what he said he was going to do and telling us all about it along the way and explaining himself, being very detailed. Here's who I am. Here's what I think. Here's what I say. Here's what I'm doing. Here's what I'm still going to do. And here's how I want to invite you to just be a part of all of it. People are intrigued with what billionaires do, right? The islands they buy, the places they go. The media always wants to know, well, why did Elon Musk retweet this, and what is Mark Zuckerberg building underground in Hawaii, right? There's all these, it's a very intriguing because they're enigmatic figures, and we guess about them, and we're wondering because they're important, we think, and, and what are they up to? You know, we know who God is. We know why God does things. He has revealed his ways and his deeds, his heart and his commands, we can go to the record right now, right, 66 books, and discover his plan, his principles, his character, his heart. We can discover all those things because he's gone on the record. It's not a secret. It's not hidden. He says, I want you to know all about who I am and what I'm doing and why I do it and why I love you and how I love you and how I'm going to keep loving you, all of these different things. One of his righteous purposes is to execute judge justice for the oppressed. And we want to be on, you know, people talk about being on the right side of history. We want to be on God's side of the issues of oppression. In the mid-1800s, there were some so-called Christians who tried to use the Bible to defend American slavery. But what could be more unjust than that? What could be more obviously outside the heart of God than that? I suppose those so-called preachers today who try to defend abortion as a moral thing, they might take the cake. But we, we need to take seriously what God takes seriously. And he says, I don't like it when people are oppressed. I don't like it when groups are trod down. I don't like it when I see human beings mistreating other human beings in those ways. He is a God of justice for the oppressed. He not only saves, he also pours vengeance out on his enemies. Now, he doesn't want people to remain his enemies. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were at war with God, he made a way of peace. He comes and offers us and, uh, you know, uh, he says, hey, I'll be at peace with you even though you have offended me, even though you're guilty of war against me and treason against me and all of these things. He wants to be at peace with people, but when people refuse to be God's friend, they remain his enemy and he keeps score and the score will be settled one day. He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's a promise. These references to justice in the Bible 
have propelled some churches into what is sometimes called the social gospel. And, you know, that, that can take a lot of forms, but what happens is the focus of ministry or the focus of church life or the focus of preaching ultimately shifts away from spiritual needs, spiritual salvation, onto physical needs uh, and the alleviation of physical problems. The emphasis tends to become using human means, human methods, human systems, and worldly structures to temporarily benefit those who are oppressed or disadvantaged. Now, not all of those efforts are, are wrong or should be avoided, but what is wrong is for Christian people to pour all of our activity into earthly programs which will inevitably fail or become corrupted themselves because they're earthly or because it's all of man's devising or it's all of human ingenuity. Our hope, our ultimate hope, can't be in human programs, in governmental systems, in human leadership, right? Our ultimate hope is Jesus Christ. He's the one that solves these problems. He's the one that is bringing a kingdom and we need to get on board with that. I saw a flag outside a house the other day. It said, you know, it was a campaign flag, but it said, Jesus 2024, our only hope. And, you know, I appreciate the sentiment, and it's a good reminder of the basic spirituality. The foundational issue is that Jesus needs to transform a life and transform a community and transform a nation. We should be as civically involved as the Lord leads us to be. Some people he will lead to be more civically involved, some a little less civically involved. We should seek to alleviate suffering, temporal suffering when we can. It's good to feed the hungry, clothe those who need clothing and things like that. I don't want you to walk out of here thinking, well, yeah, we don't help people who need physical help because after all they need is heart help. People need physical help too and we should look to how we can help those that the Lord has brought around us. And we live in a wonderfully technologically advanced time and generation where you can help people on the other side of the earth. You can help people on the other side of the street. You, there's more people that you can help than you're able to help. And so, okay, Lord, show me how you want me to tangibly help those who are suffering or struggling or those who are in need. But... At the end of the day, the final answer isn't a law or a leader or even a poverty plan. It is God's righteousness operating in my heart and many other individual hearts that then changes lives and ultimately exalts a nation. And so the mistake uh, is on either side. One mistake saying we don't help people with tangible needs because after all, the, the spiritual is the most important. And the other mistake is well, the physical is so present and so needful, so we just focus completely on that. You know, what did Jesus do with the paralytic? He said he dealt with the heart issue and he dealt with the physical issue. The heart issue took priority, but the Lord uh, could walk and chew gum at the same time, as it were. <laughs> Verse eight, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. God is so gracious, so faithful, so compassionate that even Israel is not abandoned by him. God cannot and will not forsake the nation of Israel. Thank goodness because, you know, we in the church as a separate group we're no more deserving of God's grace and mercy, right? The whole point is that you don't deserve grace and mercy, but 
uh, you know, on some level, we're no more faithful than the people of Israel had been. Back in Exodus, after the incident with the golden calf, what happened? The Lord came. He dealt with that situation uh, as it needed to be dealt with. But then he identified himself to Moses and the people, and he used the quote that David uses here right after the golden calf. This is a quote David is using from Exodus right after that where he says, hey, I am the Lord, and I am slow to anger, abounding in love. He said that to a group of people who after a few days said, well... Moses doesn't exist anymore. We don't know who God is. Yes, we see his glory at the top of this mountain in this cloud and all that, but forget it. Why don't we just make a golden calf and bow down to that and then immediately start acting like weirdo pervert pagans? Let's do that. And the Lord said, okay, a bunch of you need to be judged for this sin. And uh, Israel, this is not a good start uh, to the beginning of your life as a nation. Uh, But I'm the Lord and I am slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. Late in Jeremiah, after all the accusations, after all of the pronouncements of guilt and judgment that were rightly deserved in the nation of Israel, where the Lord said, hey, it's too late, it's over, you're going into exile. Don't try to not go into exile, you're done, right? Uh, After that, late in the book of Jeremiah, God says, But I want everyone to know, everyone to know, that no matter what, there is no way I would reject Israel. He says, the sun has to stop being the sun for me to reject Israel. And what a great comfort that is. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't care about sin or that he, you know, is fine with just sort of looking the other way when his people sin. Not at all. Look at the history of Israel. Look at the disciplines they endured. David, the author of this psalm, he would be the very first one to tell you and I that sin has terrible, sometimes lifelong, generational consequences. But in wrath, our God remembers mercy. Even when his anger must break out against sin, he is compassionate. Kidner writes, God, who is infinitely wronged by us, not only tempers his wrath, but even tempers justice, though at what cost to himself only the New Testament would reveal. The only reason the Lord is able to temper wrath against us is because he, not because he said, this debt doesn't have to be paid. No, that would be unjust. That would be corrupt. That would be God doing the wrong thing, saying, well, the wages of sin are death, but let's just call it even. (laughs) He didn't do that. He says, no, 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 the debt still has to be paid, but I'm gonna temper wrath against you. I will pay the debt. I will pay what you owe. I will reach into my own pocket, right, and take my treasure out so that you don't have to pay what you should be paying. Our sin demands death. It demands wrath. But the Lord said, I'll pay the bill. I will send my own son to die so that I don't have to give you and me the the wrath that we deserve. Uh, That's the extent of God's love. And you know what, even though we, as God's people, even though we still sin, we still disobey, we still fail to do what we should, he still relates to us in loving, merciful compassion. Verse 11 says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. 
David uses three pictures here, one spatial, one theoretical, one familial, all to illustrate the fact that God's love for you personally cannot be bounded. You can't hit the edge of it. There isn't an end. Scientists recently discovered a new galaxy that apparently is baffling astronomers according to current space science theories having to do with dark matter, and that's the end of what I understood. They, they say this galaxy shouldn't be able to exist, so they don't know how it's possible, and yet there it is. That galaxy, it's called the Noob Galaxy, is 300 million light years away. To give you just a little perspective, I love space science stuff like this because it's so ridiculously large. The space shuttle Discovery, back when we had a space shuttle, it traveled at, in, in space five miles a second. Pretty good, right? Uh, it would take the Discovery more than 37,000 years to travel one light year. And this galaxy is 300 million light years away. So whatever 37,000 times 300 million is, that's where this new galaxy is. And that's not even like... It's not like they said, okay, we found the end of the, the universe. They just said, hey, we found another one. It's way out there. The Lord wants you to know that his Hesed love for you is greater than the span of galaxies. You can't get to the end. Hesed is a, a word we're less familiar with than the New Testament sort of counterpart, agape. We're more familiar with God's agape love from the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, this Hebrew word Hesed, it's just as important. God's Hesed is a very special love. It is not a feelings-based love. It is a love based on covenant loyalty. It is kind and steadfast and gracious and strong. It is a love that is constantly shown in action and in faithfulness. Just as East can never meet West, God's love for you cannot come to an end. We, we can't overestimate God's love for us. Man, the Lord goes on record so many times in the Bible trying to say, I yeah, I love you that much. I love you so much that you can't get to the end. Build the biggest telescope you want. Look as far as you want to into the depths of space. It's, it's bigger. It's wider. It's, it's stronger. It's more amazing. If you want to experience this love, there is a requirement. You must fear the Lord. David uses that phrase three times in these verses. The Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Verse 14 for he knows what we are made of, remembering that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He blooms like a flower of the field. When the wind passes over it, it vanishes, and its place is no longer known. So we're no nothing more than dust bunnies. Hate to break it to you. I can't say uh, that I've ever felt any emotion for dust bunnies as I vacuum them up. Uh, but man, talk about a rags to riches story, right? Look at how frail, how fleeting a human life is in the grand scheme of things. And yet, we are the object of God's special attention. Look at the tenderness of God, how mindful, how thoughtful, how caring he is toward the people of earth. We would have no place unless God made a place for us. It says the wind passes over it, advantages, no place for it. We would have no place in the cosmos, in eternity, except for that God makes a place for us, and that's exactly what he's done and is doing. Where did Jesus go? He said, I'll go to prepare a place for you, one that lasts forever. Verse 17, but from eternity to eternity, the Lord's faithful love is toward those who fear him and his righteousness toward the grandchildren of those who keep his covenant, who remember to observe his precepts. So here David 
elaborates on what it means to fear the Lord. It means to keep his covenant and observe his precepts. To be in right relationship with this God who loves us so much, it requires that we understand him and that we then undertake what he commands. And this is why we need to study the Bible and prioritize it here at Calvary. Because emotional religiosity isn't sufficient. It must be informed by the truth. It must be uh, it must be full of knowledge. It has to be, uh, you know, we, we have to understand the Lord's covenant. We have to understand the gospel so that we can apprehend his truth and enter into relationship with him. But we should also take to heart here that we will not be automatically spiritual even if we study the Bible a lot. David studied the Bible, I, I would, I, I would I, he certainly studied it more than I did. And I'm guessing that he studied it, you know, just minute for minute, hour for hour, more than anybody in the room, right? And he probably had all of the books of Moses memorized. All right, okay, you, you get the ribbon, my man. <laughs> and so, and, and what did David open this with? He said, hey, remember. It wasn't just enough just to, to read or even to just sort of intellectually study. He, he said at the beginning, don't forget. Here we see those who remember to observe memory and action. The Christian life is a conscious choice day by day, not just in the mind, but with the soul. Now in heaven, we'll be complete. We'll have perfect free will. Obeying God will be then like breathing is now. And that's a great thought. But on this side of eternity, the Christian life is a walk. We saw this in Ephesians. It's a walk that takes purposeful steps, knowledgeable steps. In fact, the prophet Micah said, other people are gonna be following their gods. We're gonna walk in the name of the Lord our God. So we're blessing his name and we're walking in his name. Sadly, we tend to be faithless at times. We tend to backslide or stop progressing or get distracted or wander off the path. But praise God that when we are faithless, he is faithful. He keeps his covenant. Verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. I, yesterday, I saw a video of the mayor of Chicago complaining at a press conference. He's got low poll numbers, and he essentially said, you're all expecting me to do a bunch of stuff as mayor, but my kids have soccer games, and I've got stuff to do. I've got schedules on my personal life. <laughs> it was fantastic, and he was absolutely serious. You know, God isn't stressed out about his responsibilities. He's not maxed out to his limits of what he's able to do. He invites each and every person here and every person on planet Earth, he says, come and pile your cares at my feet because I care for you. I'll take care of those things. He is almighty and he is absolutely in charge and his ways are the answer. If I want a better life, a better family, a better society, then I need to recognize that Christ is king and his kingdom will never end and then orient my life accordingly. Verse 20, bless the Lord, all his angels of great strength who do his word, obedient to his command. Bless the Lord, all his armies, his servants who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all the places where he rules. My soul bless the Lord. So David the dust bunny commanded the angels to praise the Lord. It's just an absolutely astonishing thing that we will judge angels one day. That should humble us, and it should inspire us to serve the Lord in heart and mind and body right now, to conduct ourselves as if we're part of his kingdom because we are, and be about his business. That interesting phrase there, in all the places where God rules, and we think, well, God rules everywhere, and, and yes, he does. There is one place he doesn't rule, at least right now. Uh, he doesn't rule in every human heart. 
this almighty God who's in charge of all things and, and who is establishing his kingdom, right now he does not force us to open up the territory of our hearts to him. God Almighty allows rebellion today. You can rebel against God, shut your heart to him and say, no, you don't get to rule in here. Now, he allows that rebellion for now, not forever. One day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether they received his salvation or not. But for now, David says, in all the places he rules, and that's a great opportunity for us to make sure he rules in my heart, right? I haven't closed the door on him, have I? This wonderful Lord suffers long. He reveals who he is. He reveals the power of his love. He reveals that we are the objects of his love. He invites us to love him in return. Years before their marriage, Robert Browning, they hadn't met before, he wrote a letter to Elizabeth Barrett. He had seen some of her early poems he wrote to her and he asked to meet her. She hesitated and resisted at first, but finally accepted the invitation. And as a result, she discovered the great love of her life, her soulmate. David took a look at all of these things and his response is, man, my soul, bless the Lord. Receive his love, love him in return. Despite David's earthly prominence as the king of Israel, or despite the mistakes he had made, despite the difficulties he faced, the distractions in front of him, all these things, he realized that the very best thing he could do was to receive God's love and take his position in God's kingdom. And that's the very best thing any one of us can do. In Psalm 116, we read this. How can I repay the Lord for all the good he has done for me? I will take the cup of salvation and I'll call on the name of the Lord.